Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. No matter where you are in the world, I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of Whose World Is This? with Junior Renate Bobrun. If you're a first-time listener, I'd like to welcome you to this ongoing conversation. And if you're a returning listener, I appreciate you and thank you. And thank you for giving me your divided attention. It's much appreciated. Now, first things first, if you guys love what we do here and you want to support what it is that we do here, there are several ways to do it. The most effective way is obviously nothing says I like you like money, right? A friend of mine, I was just talking to a neighbor, not a friend of mine, but a neighbor, just as a brief aside, I'm sorry, I got to do this. But, you know, uh, they have two dogs. I just met one of my neighbors a couple of days ago. They have two beautiful puppies. Puppy, both of them are under 12 months old. Uh, two mixed breeds. They're both jet black, very rambunctious, very enthusiastic. And um, I really, really like the way they look i'd like to have a dog like that around a medium-sized dog around in the 50 pound range right really like in a jet black even though you have to be very careful i keep hearing that you know dogs that are the jet black breeds oftentimes well depending they get certain kinds of cancer but dogs come with the various you know with you know various ailments and ill, Ill uh, you know illnesses depending on the breed but anyway I was talking to the owner and the owner lives on a a higher floor and she was very remorseful of the fact that she knows she has puppies that make a ton of noise. And she says, oh, my gosh, I don't know what to do. I feel so bad for the neighbors that live beneath me. And sometimes I say I'm sorry. And, you know, the neighbors are, are very understanding. They go, don't mention it. We know you got a couple of dogs. It's not it's all good, you know. And I told her, you know, this uh, neighbor, I said, nothing says I'm sorry like a gift card for pizza. She's like in tears laughing. She thought it was very funny. Reason why I said that is because I did that. I, we had a dog and we lived on a higher floor when I lived in uh, Florida. And, you know, dog is very good in the house, except every once in a while, Emma, may she rest in peace, you know, she would get, you know, she was a flat-coated retriever, very rambunctious. She was older, you know, but, you know, this was this was right around the time she was nine years old. She died when she was 11. And um, she was just running around the apartment. The apartment had wooden floors. And I'm like, Emma, be quiet. We have neighbors. She just, for whatever reason, she wanted to play. She wanted to run. She wanted me to chase her. And the weather outside wasn't really permitting us, you know, to go outside. So she needed to get it out. She's a retriever. She's got to run. Retrievers have to run. So you know what I did? At the end of that day, the next day, I knocked on the neighbor's doors that live directly beneath me. And what did I have? I had a gift card for um, one of the pizzerias in the area. I said, do you guys have like some sort of discount coupon gift card thing? They said, yeah, we do. I said, okay, let me get one of those. And I said, listen, I'm very sorry about yesterday. I know, you know, Emma, Emma's usually very good in the house. And yesterday she was, she was like, oh, no, I don't mention it. I gave them that gift card. And they looked at me and they were very grateful and thankful. And, and they said, you really, you really don't have to do this. I was like, and I said, nothing says I'm sorry like pizza. And they laughed and they're like, you know what? You're right. That bought me enough goodwill. They never complained. It's not as if they were, I ever received any complaints about Emma. You know, they were very understanding, very good people. But I felt bad. And I just was like, I know Emma. Emma's like 65 pounds. She's a 60-pound girl. And she's jumping up and down like a maniac. I'm like, all right. So that's why, you know, that triggered that memory. So nothing says I like June's show and I want to support it like money. 
So first and foremost, here's how you can support the show. Here's how you can support the expansion of this show. Here's how you can support uh, c consistent programming to make sure that I actually will etch time out to do my level best to entertain, inform, illuminate, enlighten, educate, whatever, maybe enrage in a sense. I don't know. Um, but here's to ensure that. First things first, Cash App. Dollar sign J-U-N-B-E-A-U. Dollar sign June Bow. You can reach us directly at J-U-N-B-E-A-U at Cash App. Venmo, same name. J-U-N-B-E-A-U. Venmo. Our Zell is my full first name and my full last name, which is J-U-N-Y-A. B-E-A-U-B-R-U-N at gmail.com. If you have difficulty spelling the name, you can always look at the title. When you look at the title of the show, first and last name is there spelled correctly. Um, if you want to contact me with any kudos, congratulations, counter arguments, counterpoints, uh, suggestions, uh, topic suggestions, uh, business inquiries, opportunities for cross-collaborating or interviews, anything of the sort, feel free to reach out to us at whoseworldisthis21 at gmail.com. That's our email. Our Instagram is whoseworldisthis2021. And when I say whose world, it's W-H-O-S-E. Okay, whose world is this? So whose world is this 2021 is our Instagram Whose world is this? Two one at Gmail is our email, and our Twitter account is Whose world is this? Uh, with Junior Renee Bobrun, you know it's the full name of the show. You'll know it's me because you'll see the elephant staring back at me, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Thank you guys again, and thank you guys again for shopping at Chavez House Publishing, our number one sponsor. Uh, ChavezHouse.com. That's Chavez with an S. Please go there. Go look at one over one hundred offerings of books and journals, decorative notebooks, whether you're eight years old or 80, whether you're in grade school or grad school. You, if you just want a notebook just to have, plenty of decorative notebooks. Uh, fitness logs for men and women. Uh, logs for little ballerinas who are taking dance. Uh, uh, the gratitude affirmation logs. Password log books. Daily diaries. Over 100 offerings. I can pretty much guarantee there's something there for you or someone that you care about. You can go on Amazon if it's quicker for you. Type in Chavez House Publishing. And any offering from Chavez House Publishing and Lenore Batista is obviously a Chavez House production uh, or Chavez House product. So that's Chavez with an S, by the way, just in case you forgot. Or Chavez, C-H-A-V-E-S. Okay. Now that that's out the way. What are we going to talk about today? Last couple of episodes have been quite interesting. I've gotten a ton of feedback on them, and I've, and I've been looking to do many episodes back to back to back, but um, I wanted a couple of those episodes to sort of sit for a while with the people. And I was thinking of, let me just promote these episodes. Let me get a couple of this information out there while it's fresh. Because the last episode I did, and we were speaking about uh, what's going on with working from home and children and women stepping out of the workforce at 30-something years old or, or, or in their early 30s or, or 29 to focus on other things like family and the children, which I feel are getting left out of the conversation when we speak about child care. 
when we speak about all these things, we're not speaking about how important it is for the parents to be present, not for school vouchers and tax credits to be present, for how are we going to create a society where the parent can be more present with their child during that child's formative years. Let's get to that. Let's stop with the tax credits and the vouchers and the this and the that and the third. Let's talk about how do we actually value a society where a parent is spending time with their children or, or, or are adults only as valuable as their contribution to the labor market? Because being a parent is laborious. It's the hardest job you're going to do because you can't switch out of it. You can change professions, careers, jobs, locations. But when you are a parent, you are a parent for life. You can decide to be a doctor and then decide, I don't want to be a doctor anymore. I'm going to be a lawyer. Then you can decide, I don't want to do any of this. I want to teach or I want to travel or I'm going to cooking school. You can change professions. And oftentimes people change, you know, on average, they say people change, you know, go from one profession to another. People have two careers. Oftentimes you can spend 20 years of your life doing one thing and spend another 20 years doing another. Or you can spend 10 years dedicated to one thing, then another 10, doing another thing altogether. And a 10, there are people, I've met several people who've been successful in several different fields that were starkly in stark contrast to each other. But they did it. You give 10, 15 years to one thing, you're pretty much an expert on it. And you can give another 10, 15 years to something else. That's 30 years of experience. It's easy. But parenting, you're going to be a mom or a dad. Even when you're gone, you're still a mom and dad. You're still a parent. You are going to be known as that more than anything else. You're going to be a mom, dad, grandpa, grandma. That's who you are. And it doesn't seem as if our market, our economic philosophy our ethos in the united states of america is not putting a premium on parents being closer to their children so all of these ceos and of of multi-billion dollar multinational multi-billion dollar firms and even right down to real estate developers that i've been in in very heated discussions with which i'm enjoying and relishing because i love it you know, that are saying, how dare people think that they can just work from home in this sense of entitlement. If we really want to see a change in these babies because the American child is in crisis, maybe you haven't noticed, maybe you haven't watched the news, maybe you haven't been looking at the test scores, but the American child cannot compete in the world right now. Can't compete. Mentally and academically. Can't compete with other first world children. This is what's going on. What has changed to lead to that? Because you have to ask, at one point the American child was competing. What happened? How did the village fail these children? We spoke about it. I'm just giving a little brief overview or recap of what we spoke about. We spoke. How are we failing? How did we fail them? All of this, you know, I don't want to get into, I don't want to demonize one particular or target one particular sect, but breaking up nuclear families is not a good idea. Telling everybody to go it alone is not a good idea. Every metric and every measurement, whether it's sociologically, psychologically, the Department of Juvenile Justice, economics, academics, when we look at the kids who are graduating from college, by and large, guess who they are? 
kids coming from two-parent homes, kids who actually enroll in college but coming from two-parent homes, kids who are actually graduating from high school significantly are from two-parent homes. The kids who are dropping out early, having unwanted pregnancies, becoming teen parents, entering into sociopathic antisocial behavior leading to juvenile delinquency and juvenile records, overwhelmingly are from single-parent households. Overwhelmingly are dealing with a parent that's overworked and underpaid and overcommuted, traveling God knows where to their job because our urban planning is a disaster where we have no public transportation to speak of in, in the better part of 95% of the United States, a viable public transportation system where people can use as arteries to get from homes to schools, to art centers, to metro centers, to, to, to hobbies, to the park, to the countryside, no such thing. And it was built that way on purpose. We can speak about that. You know, as a matter of fact, I read a book on America's urban planning. It was by... um. It was about Robert Moses, who was one of the premier urban planners of the 20th century, who pretty much built New York City's highway system and the rest of the country followed suit. And that book was called The Power Broker, and it was by Robert Caro. And Robert Caro could be considered to be, he could be considered probably the greatest autobiographer in American history. I mean, he's spending the greater part of the, the most of his life writing the Lyndon Baines Johnson autobiography in several volumes. And it takes him years and years and decades to do it because this man, his research is, is bar none. There, there, he has no, no peer when it comes to the level of research that he does before he actually does a book. And The Power Broker is a, is a hefty read, as I recall. You know, I can't remember if it was a thousand pages or whatever. I read it in a, in a, in a summer and I loved it. And Robert Moses pretty much created a highway system and a public transportation system in New York City, which made sure that the poor and the impoverished and the colored and the working class couldn't get to certain sectors of New York without having a car because a car at the time was a privileged item. It was an item of affluence. It was, he had this idea in this visage of the United States where it was only going to be the wealthy, the property, the affluent that were going to have cars that were going to take, that were going to um, get on these throughways and freeways and bridges that he was building. These, these, he had this majestic vision of the United States as a playground for the affluent, and it was only going to be the impoverished that were going to use the public transportation system. It's one of the reasons why New York City trains don't go into Long Island. New York City buses don't go into Long Island. And Long Island in New York, Long Island is part of New York City, that little island. But as soon as you get out of Queens, you cannot take a train from Queens, Brooklyn, Manhattan, and the Bronx into Long Island. The Mass Transit Authority doesn't go into uh, 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 Long Island. It's the Long Island Railroad. It's above ground, comfortable seating. It's you can see outside, you can see the birds, the bees, the trees, the bees, the sun. It's a comfy ride. It's not like being underground, like being in a New York City subway. So there was a certain segregatory 
dynamic to it. And Robert Moses, um, I'm sorry, the book, The Power Broker, highlights that. When I, I'm living in New York City, born and raised, and I'm reading this book, and I'm having this, this kaplow moment in my head. Because I always asked myself, why can't I just get on the E-train? Because I lived on the borderline of, of, of the boroughs and Long Island. As a matter of fact, where I lived was less than a mile walk from Long Island. I lived in 718 area code, and I lived on the border of the 516 area code, which was Long Island, the beginning of Long Island. And it was vastly different, the transportation system. Why? Because Robert Moses is the one who created the highways going from Manhattan all the way to Long Island. They have the Robert Moses Highway, I think, and the Robert Moses Park. Yeah, because his imprint on our highway system. So we had horrible urban planning where people have to travel long distances to metro centers, et cetera, et cetera. Parents are spending inordinate amounts of time away from their children during their children's most formative years. And then you have the Robert, the robber barons of today and the, and, the, and the curators of capital and the guardians of our capital industries very upset that workers want to take a minute after they've been overworked and underpaid over the last 40 years and wages have been stagnant and it went valuated for inflation, the American worker is underpaid by at least 35%. Those are facts, people. And I think I'm being conservative in those numbers. So what am I going to talk about today? Is this going to be just a recap? To a certain degree, yes. Why? Because there were certain things, there were certain numbers that I used conservatively in the previous episode, as it, especially as it pertained to the cars and, and car sales and car prices. If you listened to uh, the last episode that we did, I was uh, I sort of recapped a sort of little mini debate that I had with a uh, real estate developer who was very upset at the whole work from home situation dynamic that's going on. And I and I kind of said that he's. You know, he, he's he's speaking from a class distinction perspective. And I said, why is it that someone why is it that someone who's barely making $50,000 a year, which is, which is probably under the national average of salaries. Some people say the national average of salaries is around 50,000. 50, some people, some economists say it's in the 40,000s. But in any case, the average new car price is $48,000 a year. I'm sorry, $48,000. The average used car is 33,000. And I gave an example of childcare is between 600 and $1,000 per month on average and i said your car note is about 300 and your and your um insurance is about 150 to 200 and your you know uh gas and whatever is about 100 to 200 i was extremely wrong in my car note valuation the average car note in the united states right now in 2023 is 718 dollars per month did you hear what i just said I remember going to the Mercedes dealership years ago and I said, I want to get this car. This is how much I want to put down. What's going to be my car note? They said 720 something dollars a month. I was like, whew, nice little penny, but it was okay. I am old enough or young enough or whatever to remember where there are certain places in America. As a matter of fact, there are certain places in America 
as we speak where the rent is about seven to 900 per month. So you're telling me that you're upset at people for wanting to stay home and work from home when the average car note is $718 per month and we haven't even put gas yet in this thing? Hmm? <laughs> I'm just asking everybody, okay? $700 for a new car and you live in a country $700 a month for a new, you live in a country where the car that you are driving has to be reliable because what other choice do you have? You don't have alternatives. So you, you, you have to get a new car, even the cheapest new car. You have to get it. You have to get one that's under warranty because your, your pockets are thin. Why are your pockets thin? Inflation. Your wages have been stagnant. Never mind all of this talk about, ooh, the, the race to $15 an hour or the, the fight for 15 So what? So what? What is $15 an hour? In a, in, in a country that has three, four dollars per gallon gas, in a country that has no public transportation system for the 95% of the population. And they're going to be spending an inordinate amount of money on transportation because it's a necessity at this point, having a car. It's not a privilege. It's not what Robert Moses envisioned. This, this sort of, this item that's, that's desi this designated affluence. This evidence of affluence, that's not what a car is. A car in the United States of America is evidence of necessity. If you live in Florida, you need a car. You live in South Carolina, you need a car. North Carolina, you need a car. Virginia, West Virginia, Delaware, Maryland, you need a car. You need a car. You don't want a car, you need a car if you live in Oklahoma. You need a car if you live in Texas, New Mexico, Nebraska, Idaho, North and South Dakota. What are you? So you have, you are, you are at the mercy of the market. It's not public transportation where maybe if you're a lower income individual, you can um, get a tax voucher or maybe a credit for your travel or whatever. Maybe you can get the job to help you because there are certain jobs I remember in Manhattan that would give you a Metro card to use the, the train. Whew, I loved those jobs. So that little 150 or $200 a month, I don't know how much it is to, to get on a train. I haven't been on a NYC subway in, I don't know, seven, eight years. Actually, it's going to be eight years this year, you know, whatever. But um, with all of that being said, you're upset at people not wanting to to be a part of the $700 a month for a car club because they can't afford to be. You're afraid at, you're upset at them for cutting those costs when businesses cut costs all the time. Now the employee is saying, listen, I have a laptop. I don't have to put spend money 700 a month, not including the insurance, which is going to which is going to boost you up to 800 a month immediately because about a $100 a month. Uh, what, what's the average car insurance? Um, I, th I thought I wrote it down somewhere. Um, trying to look for it right now. Let me see. I had it somewhere written down for a reason. I can't remember. But I know it's around $100 a month. I know it's around that. And um, they don't like to give those numbers out because insurance companies with blah, blah, blah. But 
Um, don't want you to to see the average, but um, it's about eighty-one to a hundred dollars a month. So that means you have seven hundred dollars a month for the car note, just to have the car before you insure it. Then it's going to be another hundred dollars per month to insure it. That puts you at eight hundred. You didn't put gas in this thing yet. You didn't put gas in it yet. That's going to be how much, depending on your commute. Hmm, hundred dollars possibly, if not more. So right now, just to get on the road, it's going to cost you about $900 a month. That sounds like rent. You haven't found a place to live yet. <laughs> That's the car, <laughs> right? That's the car. Because guess what? Remember, remember what Uber was promising us? That Uber was going to be so cheap that it could replace you having your own car. The future was going to be ride sharing, where you can just get to where you need to go for two, three, four, five dollars a day or three, four, five dollars a trip. How's that worked out? It hasn't. Why? Because the people that were working for Uber or the people's cars were being devalued at an astronomical rate because they were adding and tacking on miles at an astronomical rate. And every one of us knows as soon as your car leaves the lot, it's worth about 20 to 30% less than when you paid for it, so to speak. But that used to be the old model. Now in this, this age of short supply and high demand, some of those numbers are skewered. But at the same time, hey, those, that mathematics still applies if your car has high mileage. You're going to sell it less for less than you got it for, for, for the most part, more than you purchased it for. So you have that. Then people were saying, hey, listen, between fuel costs, maintenance of my car, having several people in my car and having to clean my car and making it presentable for customers to, to, to enter and travel and traverse through, the costs started applying. So guess what Uber started doing? Because the employees were saying, hey, listen, I'm using my own car. What protections do I have from Uber if anything goes wrong? Uber's like, no, you're an independent contractor. This is a side hustle, et cetera, et cetera. And people were saying it's not worth it. So to make it worth it and to make it profitable for Uber, for people to use Uber and to have enough cars on the road, they had to up the minimum per ride by naturally for it to make sense. So guess what happened? I've taken Uber. I've taken Uber quite often over the last year or so. And guess what? Uber is not the bargain it used to be. So people can't say, you know what? I don't need a car. Because I have all of these ride sharing options that are about three or, to t or about $10 a day. And if it's $10 a day over a 30 month span, a 30 day span, and, it's, and you're spending about $300 a month without having to deal with gas and maintenance, that would be great. That would be great. $300 a month. Cool. But that's not the case. Little regular short, short, short trips were costing. 10, 12, 15 dollars out of pocket just to go one way. And you say, oh, wow. OK, so that's not an option. So guess what? You're going to have to buy one of these very reliable new cars that's, uh, that are under warranty. Or you're going to have to find a very reliable used car that's 33,000 or the new car that's averaged at 48,000. Either way, your average car note is going to be $700 per month. Your average insurance cost is going to be $100 a month. Okay? 
and your average gas cost is going to be about that too. About 100, 100 and change. They're saying it's about $150. Right now they're saying that it's between $150 and $200 a month for gas. So on the low end, it's $150. $700 for the note, $100 for the insurance, $150 for the gas. So you're spending more on fuel than, than to insure the car. That puts you at $950 a month. $1,000 a month just to get to a job. And you're telling me I can save $1,000 a month because I can do that same job from my home. I know people who've sold their cars because they're working from home. They said, you know what? I'm a homebody. I live within walking distance of my gym. My gym is about a mile walk. I'll walk it or I'll get on my bicycle. So I'll go to your local box store and get a $100 bike. And I'll ride around and I get my groceries ordered. I know people who ride their bikes now to the um, 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 store. But, you know, we have these sort of, uh, they call them strodes. These street roads in the United States where, where these roads are so perilous to cross. We don't live in the, in the most walking-friendly, bike-friendly universe in the United States. So you're, you're, you're using a bicycle at your own risk if you're trying to get to your, your city centers or whatever just to go to the grocery store or do things like that or go to your local, um, what do you call it, plaza or mini mall. You got to cross some six-lane street because, we're, because our urban planning sucked. Not one of those long lanes has a ferry or a shuttle or maybe an above-ground train in the middle of the road acting as the divider. Can't tell me we can't do it. Elon Musk is going to the moon on his own dollar and the feds and the government, of course. But still, you have civilians going to the moon. Don't tell me you couldn't build a comprehensive public transportation and a high-speed rail. I was living in Italy for half a year. What I saw there was I was saying to myself, oh, my God, we, we got to get it together. What are we doing? <laughs> we got to get it together. I'm going to Italy. I'm like, what, what, what's going on? I'm hanging out in Germany on the U-Bahn. I'm like, look at this. Why, why, we, why? I'm in America. Biggest economy on earth. Italy's economy is, is, is dwarfed in comparison to America's economy. Okay? And what? Why? Because it doesn't serve the people who make cars and the people, who, the rubber companies and the oil companies. Because oil makes up, I think, about a quarter of, of rubber, of rubber tires. It's 25% oil. So now if you don't have 100 cars on the road and you have 100 people in a train car, guess who loses money? The car industry, the rubber industry, the oil industry, all of those lobbies. So that's if so. So when we're demonizing the American worker for cutting costs, their own costs, that's that's the real child care tax credit right there. Letting them stay home and be next to their child. Be adjacent to their child. Wor see their child during the day working hours. We should be applauding this. 
because our children are in crisis and our adults are in crisis because by the time you turn around and you blink, your kids are grown. You've been working 40, 50 hours a week. Your kid gets home in the evening. You get home in the evening. All of a sudden, boom, both of you are just eating dinner and going to, going to sleep. And then you have the summers where they're home and you're at work and et cetera, and everything is all discombobulated. You're trying to find summer day programs for them to get into while you're at work because parents hate summer. Parents hate the summer because they're like, now I got to find something for this little person to do. Most of the parents that I know, they're like, oh, my gosh, because it's summer for the child, but it's not summer for the adult. So the adult now has to figure out what am I going to do with this kid? What am I going to do with this kid? Snow days, parents are going, oh, my God, I got to get to work. Uh, what am I going to do with this kid? I've heard it. I remember being a kid and there were snow days in New York and my mom is saying to herself, oh my gosh, I can't leave this kid alone in the house. June is going to, and then, you know, you know, and I was bad. So all I was going to do was watch TV and try to find potato chips because she used to hide my treats. You know, very interesting that I'm going through that right now with my, my fiance. She hides the treats too. Seems like sometimes boys never, boys don't grow up. We just get old. We get older, but we don't really mature, I don't think, in some ways because I, I get treats hidden for me right now. You know, she'll just come into the room and drop a treat on the bed or in the office saying, I'll go, what, what's this? She'll be like, enjoy it. I'm like, where is it? She said, don't ask questions, just enjoy it or you won't get any more. And I'll go, all right. So th that's my life, right? You know, I'm, I'm like a little puppy, get a treat and then my tail wags and that's it. You know, that's how she gets me to obey. Interesting. But I say that because We've demonized where uh, there's a certain narrator narr narrative that's being propagated now the pushback, the pushback from the CEOs. And I want you people out there to understand that they're going to tell you, oh, why is working from home messing with your sleep habits? That's that's an article I was reading now. That's corporate. That's the empire striking back on this new dynamic that don't want to actually list how things are better off. And I don't want to go into the carbon footprint is less. I'm not going there. That's not my argument. I've told you guys before, I'm not an environmentalist. I'm not. Give me my Porsche full high octane. I don't want an electric motorbike. I don't want an electric car. Not while, not while we're getting all of those metals from the third world and you have neo-slavery going on in central africa i've noticed that uh there are certain um platforms like joe rogan that have had guests on speaking about that and i'm very and i applaud it because his audience is massive it's something that i've been speaking about for years and i talked about it last year on this show i think even before that i think i mentioned big coltan big copper big cobalt and bloody cobalt Blood diamonds, blood copper, blood coltan, blood cobalt. I mentioned that in 2021. And I'm not saying, oh, I was the first. I'm just saying that I already knew that all of these EV evangelists for electric vehicles were hypocrites. Even that girl, Thornburg, whatever her name is, that young girl from Europe who's doing a great job of highlighting the issues with climate and hypocrisy. But the number one hypocrisy is the exploitation of six, seven, eight, nine, ten year olds, man, woman, and child getting their arms and feet chopped off working in cobalt mines in Africa as we speak. For every one of your electric vehicle batteries, the lithium, the cobalt in our phones, 
in our television screens, our flat screens, our laptops, we're all at fault. So don't tell me about climate change. If we can't change how we, I think that was the thing I did. It was the human nature. I think it was human change versus climate change. I think that was the name of the actual episode. Um, if anyone wants to go back in the catalog, go look back. I can't remember which episode that was, but I enjoy doing that episode because I have several friends that are environmentalists um, and they didn't like my stance. They didn't like how I said, I'm not an environmentalist. Give me a, I want a V8 portion. I want that gas smell out the engine. Give me that. And they're like, oh, June, well, what about the environment? What do you mean? What environment are we speaking about? Is the same environment that's trafficking children? That environment? Like, what environment? I don't know what you're talking about. That's the environment I'm talking about. I don't want any rivers and streams poisoned so I can have a V8 engine. But you know what I really don't want? I don't want any other children exploited. Not one child. I don't want anyone forced into a, some sort of labor camp. Whether it's for, uh, whether it's for uh, sexual exploitation, capital exploitation, I don't care. I don't want to see another child harmed. So until we're, that's the environmentalist that I am. When we talk about environments, I'm more concerned with how humane we're treating each other. And this plays into that. What we're speaking about right now when it comes to this working from home. The reason why I'm so adamant about it is because I did that July 4th episode about America failing its boys. It's also failing its girls. But I focused on the boys specifically because of the shootings. Because when we look in, in prisons, by and large, men are more violent than women. But what you're looking at what's going on right now on the south side of Chicago, in New York City, in Atlanta, in parts of Massachusetts, in Virginia, in Baltimore, in Miami, in, in, in Southern California, all over. Young boys don't have a clue. Their test scores are lower than, than, than at historical lows. They're dropping out of school. They're dropping out of college at historical rates. I was asked before the government shutdown in 2020, I was asked by a chairman of a sociological department to, 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 to discover and to, to discuss why young YBMs, young black males were dropping out of college at astronomical rates. Like they were just dropping out. They were not completing the education. And I was like, how much time do you have? How much time do you have? So my America is failing its boys were for all boys, regardless of socioeconomic conditions, regardless of race, regardless of any of that. The young suburban affluent white kid is feeling as marginalized as some urban youth coming from a very dysfunctional environment. You got kids coming from two family homes where both parents are professionals and they're deciding that everyone needs to go. They've discounted and dismissed the value of human life down to zero, to less than zero. Theirs and others. How did we get here? One of the reasons why, main reason why, parents ain't present. P-A-P. -P, parents ain't present. Where are they? Oh, they're, 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 they're based on this 
based on this segregatory urban planning that we've done throughout the United States of America, based on various factors, mom and dad have to work 10, 20 hours. They have to work. They, they, they're traveling, um, taking many parents 10 hours a week just to get to and from work. Okay, how about that? I was a super commuter. One and a half hours each way. That's three hours a day in travel. That's 15 hours a week to commute from Queens to Manhattan. To get from where I lived to the World Trade Center to Wall Street. I have a Wall Street background as well. And it took me a long time to get to, 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 to Worth Street and World Trade Center uh, stop on the E train. Start from Archer Avenue. Jamaica Avenue, Archer is in Archer Avenue and Parsons Boulevard, all the way first stop to the last stop. Not including my bus ride. People would say, well, June, well, why did you travel all that way, man? You should have should have what? What should I have done? Oh, get an apartment closer to Manhattan. Hmm. That would be great. But guess what? That means <laughs> I wouldn't be able to do anything except pay rent at that point. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to do anything else. I would be just paying rent barely, hopefully. Wouldn't be able to feed myself. That means, ooh, I have an apartment very close to my job. I'm about 35 minutes out. Yeah, so, yeah, but I, I can't afford milk. I can't afford, ooh, a gallon of water? Nah, I'm going to take my chances with this faucet. Oop, my water shut off. Uh-oh. <laughs> I just have, oh, I don't have light. I'm living by lantern because I can't even afford lights and water in my place. So I had them shut it off. Yeah, I'm in the dark right now. I'm using candlelight. That's what it would have meant to be closer to the job. Or it was either that or live in the straight New York version style version of a favela where I'm in a war zone trying to get to and from work in my two to three piece suit and my little leather attache case looking like prey for the predators. Yeah, those are my options. Those are the options presented to many, many people across this country. So with the child in crisis, their mental health is compromised at the moment. That is a fact, people. That is a fact. I don't care where you come from. You're, I don't care if both parents are Harvard graduates. I, I just had a friend. I'm not even going to mention that. But let's just say that suicides are up amongst young adults, and it's, it's crazy. It, I, it, it's something that I, I'm not familiar with suicide. Unfortunately, being raised in New York City, I'm familiar with homicide more than I am with suicide. That's unfortunate, but that's just the reality. Now, in my, and now that I'm past that youth phase where I'm actually feet boots on the ground of young people getting murdered by each other i know it i'm cognizant of it but i'm not in it but i understand it because i lost friends that way and i remember going into my high school and there's a, this sort of macabre this morose energy as soon as i as soon as i opened the doors and i used to always be i was i was chronically late i was mr tardy so you know i and i wanted to make an appearance depending on what sneakers i had on so sometimes I would be fashionably late, I think is the term that they use in high school. And I remember a couple of times I, you know, I bought some new thing, new wardrobe that I knew no one else had. And if they do, it was only going to be only maybe the more affluent kid in the school had the same thing, maybe. 
but my the race to be the first was very important in New York City at that time. And I walk into school with my with my sort of like nonchalant kind of vibe, like hey, it's nothing. I do this every day, and no one's paying attention because everyone's crying. And I'm like, what's going on? Oh, such and such was killed last night. Who? Damn. So that was the reality. We lived with our mortality going to school. And I dealt with that every day between the ages of 14 and 18. Every single day, five days a week. Weekends off from that. That was part of my reality. Fast forward now, the reality is there are people now in their 20s and 30s and 40s that are committing suicide. That has become my new reality. Went from homicide to suicide, but homicides are at an epidemic rate as well. It's a little insane right now. A little insane. So now you have young adults, children, teenagers thinking that suicide's okay. They can't cope. And one of the reasons they can't cope is because mom and dad ain't present. They don't feel that anyone understands them or hears them or values them. And no matter how many I love yous you say, mom and dad, you got to be present. And when parents ain't present, when PAP exists, these are the circumstances. So when you see me propagating the nuclear family and people may consider that to be a knock on other alternative family dynamics, that's not what it is. I'm speaking about best practices. And so far, we don't have any examples whatsoever that improve on the nuclear family. All the examples presented actually diminish the positive outcomes of a child being raised, born and raised in a nuclear family, where the mom and dad are cohabitating and working together. Not co-parenting, cohabitating. Shared value systems being reinforced daily. Not dad's got a new family and he's on that side of town and he's coming to pick you up on the weekends and he's got a new girlfriend and the girlfriend has kids from another situation and your mom has a new boyfriend and, and, and he has kids from another situation. Where's the value system? Where's the continuity? This is a fractured village. So all of that ties into what I'm saying. I'm, these are not reaches. I'm not being a boomer. I'm not a boomer. This is not me saying, oh, June, you're, you are, you're not woke enough. Oh, you sound like a rigid, you sound like a phobe. I don't have those phobes. I'm talking about best practices based on the data. And the data suggests that what I'm saying is correct. That's what the data has revealed. So I'm following that. And I'm following not just examples of my life. Oh, yeah, well, I know somebody who's from a single family and a divorced family, and they're doing great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know people who smoked cigarettes for 35 years, and they're doing just fine. And then there's the others that have arteriosclerosis, congestive heart failure, and have everything else. Because the majority of you, the majority of us, if we decide to enter into certain situations, yeah, if, if you run across the highway, um, there's a chance you can make it across. But what's the percentages? We're playing the percentages, right? Okay? I can bet you a billion dollars right now that I can, my forefinger can touch my knee. This is almost an absolute set. What's the certainty? It's almost 100%. Boom, I just did it. Billion. It's a certainty. But what's the percentage that I can touch your knee from where I am? It's the same thing. 
So if you're playing the percentages and you're playing and you're and we're, and if you're playing the percentages having families recreating this society in the image of a more work life balance more work life friendly balance the 4 day work week is the beginning of the conversation the shortened work day is the beginning of the conversation not the end that's the beginning it's not like ooh we got a 4 day work week ooh that's the end finish line gold medal championship lombardi trophy no no that's the beginning if you're having if you if if you want to fo foster an environment where these children are, in, are, are are being raised in a functional positive situation that's the beginning of the conversation real talk so reason why i'm bringing this up also is because i read something today because um <sighs> Very interesting. I read something and I couldn't believe it. So apparently, <laughs> car loans, car loan delinquencies are at financial crisis highs. We haven't seen car delinquencies this high in the United States since the financial crisis of 2007 2008 it's been 15 years since people have been defaulting on their car loans at this rate hey what's going on people remember i said thousand dollars a month for this car I'm not crazy this this is the this is in the financial times that i was reading this morning and i was like oh okay and i was speaking about this Earlier on in the week, when you've when you've been listening to the the other when I spoke about the forty eight thousand uh, dollar new car and the thirty three thousand, and now you know, and I had to update my car note information because it's seven hundred dollars a month. So subprime people whose credit took a hit, people who took a hit because of government shutdowns uh, and because of government vaccine mandates, were many individuals who were doing just fine financially, physically mentally and spiritually and their lives were ripped apart by government policy and decisions those people now lost it all evicted defaulted on loans the ppp and those payments and those pandemic loans and payments did great for some they was able to sort of glean over certain bills that they needed to be paid. It was like, okay, got to pay this car note. These credit cards are going to be in the toilet, but at least I have the car and the house is paid for. Remember? Or, or remember the people whose rents, they had rent moratorium on rents and things like that? Well, guess what? I've said this before, and I remember, I think, I can't remember what episode. I know I said this last year. Not that it's important that I said it already, but it's true. I remember mentioning that the chickens were going to come home, the financial chickens were going to come home to roost after all of these moratoriums were lifted. We were going to see record foreclosures and we were going to see record delinquencies on certain things. That's what's happening. Because guess what was happening? While people were using the PPP to pay their car notes and, their, and, their, and if they didn't have a moratorium on their rent or mortgage, paying their mortgage or their rent, guess what they weren't paying? Credit cards. So guess what was happening? Their credit scores were in the toilet, so they became subprime. And then with mandates and things like that and, th and, 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 and the various landscape changes that are going on, because now guess what we're having as well? There are massive layoffs in the tech sector. 
massive layoffs and, 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 and peripheral sectors aligned with the tech sector. And with, with people working from home, we had that other conversation. Certain businesses are closing down, et cetera, et cetera. But it's supply chain issues. Uh, a lot of these government decisions now, you're looking at the side effects of, of, the, of the medicine that you were given. The shutdown medicine, the do this or else medicine that's proven to not be medicine at all. Guess what? This is what it looks like. So now you had this company, I think it's called American Car Center. It has over 40 dealerships across the country. They shut its doors. They were the kings of subprime lenders for cars. And subprime borrowers. Who is a subprime borrower? It's someone whose credit score is, I think, less than 600 or maybe around the 500s, but is working, is gainfully employed, just doesn't have a great credit score. And guess what they need? Guess what they need because of how we built our system? They need a car. What was interesting is, I was reading another article that was speaking about how the work from home or the return to office situation is lagging in the United States more than it's lagging in Europe and in Asia. And everyone is wondering, oh, well, what's the difference? How come Europe is able to get people back to work sooner than, um, I mean, I'm sorry, not back to work because everyone's working. How come Europe is getting people to return back to office at a higher rate than the United States? Oh, well, hmm. Maybe it's what I just mentioned, $1,000 a month just to own some raggedy new car. You're not pushing a Bentley Continental GT. You're not behind the wheel of a 740 BMW. You're not behind the wheel of an E500 convertible just for you to get some regular car to take you to and from some job. It's costing you $1,000 a month. I'm sorry. Um... I lived in Italy, remember? I visited Italy quite a few times. Visited Paris quite a few times. Guess what they have? Great public transportation. Easy to get to work. What else do they have? Three-hour lunch breaks. <laughs> you have siestas. I lived in Italy. Businesses were shut down for two, three hours so people can go home and actually eat with their families, not eat at their desk. That's what was going on, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so if people are having three-hour lunches, if people have four to five weeks vacation and they have their benefits and they have their public transportation, guess what? If I were living in Europe right now, I'd be going to work too. And I don't have to spend $1,000 a month on a car that I can't afford, literally cannot afford, taking a big chunk out of my suppressed salary. Like I said, I lived over there. I lived in Italy. I love their train system. Their train system, although they, they had a lot of strikes for various reasons, but it was great. Got to the airport, got here. Termini Station, Lepanto, here, there, everywhere. I lived, I think, where I was living, I was right by the Lepanto stop. It was in Prati, Ancola um, de Rienzo, over there. Beautiful street in Prati, Rome, uh, affluent neighborhood, and everyone's on the train. From prince to pauper, everyone's on the train. Car is unnecessary. They, have sh they had ferries 
as well. They had buses and they had these little electric ferries and other parts of Rome. They had the train that was comprehensive. I was living, I was fine. I got to every single place I needed to go in Rome with a map. I went online, saw the map, got a map from the train station. I mapped out where I needed to go and I was everywhere. Impossible to do if I was, if I, if I was in the United States for six months in, in middle America somewhere. And I was some exchange student from overseas living in the United States. I would be stranded if I wasn't in a, in a, in a town center. Stranded. But I was able to explore. I was able to go all the way to Naples three hours away from. I would go to Naples 8 a.m. on Saturday after Saturday mornings. I would get on the 8 a.m. train or the 8 something, 815 train and get to Naples at 1130 and hang out in Naples for the day. And I would take the last train out, which was around, I think, eight, nine o'clock at night, sometimes later. And I would take that last train out back to the Termini station and take a train back to the Lepanto station, which was two, three blocks from where uh, my residence was. It's good living. I wouldn't have been able to do any of that. And I did that all for mere pittance. Two, three, four euro. That Naples trip, three and a half hours on a high speed rail was like $25. What are we talking about, people? What are we talking about? I'm spending 20 bucks on an Uber to travel what? 10, 12 miles? 20-minute trip is costing you $20 in an Uber in, in the United States. So when I was reading some people saying, well, Europe must have maybe the... Wait, wait, we know, you, we know one thing about Europe. They know how to chill. I was there. I saw it. I was in Rome going, wait, I need stuff open right now. And they was like, nope, we're not opening until like three and it's noon i'm like what <laughs> what are you talking about and i got used to it but somehow they kept their lights on and that's why they're getting people back to work in, in certain parts of europe comprehensive railway system more lax work environment where they make time for you to see your family during the daytime hours make it actually easily free you get to live closer to town and metro centers because you have a robust system that subsidizes you where you can actually live in some low-income housing that's pretty decent. And so you're not living an hour and a half away from your job. All of this stuff plays a part in the way we are right now, people. I'm not looking to compare and contrast us to the European model on a whole. But if we're going to look at this and look at this in a vacuum, that's one of the main reasons why you're able to go back. I speak to my Italian friends once a week. I know what's going on on the ground over there in, in, in parts of Europe, in Denmark, in uh, Germany, in uh, 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 Italy, in Bordeaux, in France. I know what's going on. People had no problem going back to work. Yeah, 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 I like my job. Yeah, you know, we get two hours during the day. You know, we go to lunch. We eat out. You know, we, 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 sometimes we work from our laptops at the cafe. I was there. I saw it. Everybody was working from outside. And they didn't want to be home because their town centers are so robust and beautiful. They were like, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to stay here. I want to go outside. I want to go to the cafes. I want to go to my, I, I like the restaurants by my job. And you're not being grinded down to the bone at your job, you know, under the, under the guise of your totalitarian supervisor and big brother. And you're like, no, no. The American work environment is not 
a pleasant one. I'm so, it's the truth. The cubicle environment, it's not pleasant. Jumping on a train and a bus with a bunch of other people that don't want to be on that train or a bus and take that slog and take their labor into their job and they leave with nothing but a paycheck. They don't get royalties. They don't get residuals. They don't get a big stock bump at the end of the quarter. Just this check, a pat on the back, and a gift and an AMC gift card. Thanks. So I had to get into a conversation with someone who was ignorantly uh, looking to juxtapose the European model and Americans are getting lazy and entitled. But that's what we used to say about Europeans. I've worked for companies that did business with Europeans and they would be very upset that everyone was on holiday. And we're taught that you're not even supposed to take your vacation days to work through your vacation days and your sick days was considered a virtue in this country for a long time. Yeah, walk it off, push through it. Now the conversation is about mental health days, not, not impacting your paid time off or your vacation days where, okay, well, you have your vacation days, you have your paid time off and your sick days, but we're also going to now allot you mental health days. You don't need to have mental health days in Europe. You want to know why? Because sometimes you can just take the day off or you have four weeks off. When you have four weeks off out of a year, a full month off, yeah, paid and you have a robust maternity and paternity leave, yeah, you may not need as many mental health days. And when you have two, three-hour siestas, yeah, you might not be going, you might not, you might not suffer from the same burnout and mental fatigue that many people have faced. I don't like to hear when the boomer generation speaks about how strong they are, when as soon as their money uh, was decreased by a couple of decimal points. They were the first ones jumping out of windows on Wall Street, respectfully. And I say that respectfully because suicide is no laughing matter and it's not, not something to ridicule. But that's the truth. America has a colorful history when it comes to that. That's part of our history. Numbers go down. Those financial numbers go down, and guess what? Suicide rates go up. And it's usually someone in the 50 to 60-year-old range, and he's a man. And he goes, oh, my God, I'm ruined. Because his net worth and his self-worth, he hasn't separated the two. So now he's decreased by a couple of numerical decimal points according to our U.S. currency system. And because of that, he feels he's worth less. And he feels he's worthless because he's worth financially worth less. And he decides to take his own life. Okay. And remember, life insurance doesn't pay out to his wife and kids. In the, in the case of suicide. So he's gone and his family is left fractured mentally, physically and financially. That's the reality. Uh, so I don't want to hear boomers talking about how tough they are. They lose a couple of dollars and they, put, they jump out of windows and a gun is in their mouth. Relax. Don't do that. Don't do that. Let's not call this generation weak. That's not, that's not correct. It's not accurate. It's mean-spirited. And you're not part of the solution when you talk like that, when you're dismissive. So I never called this generation weak. I said this generation is in crisis. 
is a difference. And each generation has its own crisis to go through, whether it be mental, moral, whatever the case, financial, doesn't matter. So I've never said, oh, man, these these zennials and millennials or these zennial, whatever. Oh, man, these guys are weak, man. They're not like when I grew up. No, 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 no. We're not doing that here. We're not doing that here. You're not part of the solution. I need to hear the whys. If you're going to tell me they're weak, why? Why? Oh, because their parents. Oh, boomers. W wait a minute. Oh, 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 wait. Oh, so that means it's not their fault. The village. Oh, the village failed them. I'm not going to blame a child. I'm going to blame the village. It's like, it's like my fiance always says. Um, she's, been, she's been a dog owner most of her life. And, you know, I've only, you know, been with her. I've seen her with her, her, uh, her last dog, which was Emma. You know, when I met her, she had, you know, this beautiful, majestic animal, which was her companion. And... That was the most well-trained dog I'd ever been around in my entire life. And she used to always say, you don't have to train dogs. You have to train owners. She used to always say that. A dog, a, most dogs, she said, if they're not red zone dogs, she said most dogs, the majority of dogs, the way they act is a reflection of how the owner is. Train owners and your dog will be just fine. She used to say that and I didn't understand. I was like, really? And I saw it. It's the same with kids and parents. Train the parent on how to parent. Child will turn out all right. Train the parent on what's necessary for that child to grow up and not jump on people and bite people. Because that's what's going on right now. These kids are biting people. These kids are going out in the street, mass shooting, biting people. On college campuses, on a college campus. You know what college means? If you can get into a good university, that means you and your family did a lot of things right. If you can get an 18-year-old to be a freshman in a, in a state-accredited university, that's one little sigh of relief that you can let out. Not a full sigh. Not a full sigh because a parent never gets to fully exhale. Their whole life, they're in a state of perpetual worry. They're grateful for their child. They love their child. Oh, my child graduated with honors. My child is a doctor. My son is a doctor. My daughter's a lawyer. Everyone's doing great. They, they have both, they have beautiful families and their kids are great. They, you know, they're, they're happily married. You know, I, I couldn't be happy with my in-law, my, all of that. And they're still waiting for the other shoe to drop because that's what it means to be a parent. But the first sigh you get is the high school graduation. The second sigh is the college freshman. Like, oh, you got into a good college. Oh, and you have a good major. Whew. The next sigh is when they graduate with that major and don't come to you a semester or two later saying, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I'm leaving college and I'm going to Istanbul. I don't know when I'll return. Oh, Jesus. But so when that child enters into college, and you're going, oh, I love the major that they're taking. If they, if they stay the course, this kid's going to be just fine. I'm happy and I'm grateful. And guess what's happening on college campuses now? Other college students are shooting other college students. Just when you thought you can exhale, sorry, keep holding your breath because your kids are biting people because of how they were trained. Sorry, because of how they were trained and the society that they're in. I said it yesterday. I'm sorry. I said it a couple of episodes ago. 
I, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday and I will continue to say it. If we're not having a conversation, a real conversation about work-life balances, which is what working from home right now is representing to a certain degree. Working from home right now is representing a new age in work-life balance. This is what it's representing. In an age where kids are subjected to more information than any other child in the history of humanity, never in the history of the world has a child been, ex has a child been exposed to as much information at one time as a child now is. Swiping through TikTok vids and shorts and this, having the television, the laptop, the phone, and the video game system on. We discussed this. Evolution is slow. Life comes at you fast. And the human mind hasn't evolved to the point where it can look at television, then 90 different commercials, then the, tel then the radio's on, then you're swiping, then you're playing a game on your phone while you're getting texts from multiple people looking to have multiple conversations. And you wonder why everyone needs a break? <laughs> Listen, people, right now, as I'm looking at certain articles, because I usually don't read or I usually, like I've said before, I don't like to have notes and I don't like to read while I'm talking to you. This is an ongoing conversation, but you got to I had to have certain stats up the average person right now who's dealing with the repossession and they're going to these subprime lenders, which are lenders that lend cars or lend money to people who have less than stellar credit. They're entering into the dealership already being $10,000 in the hole. And they're looking to roll over that $10,000 into the new loan. So if that used car was 33 grand, you got to add the $10,000 that you owed on the last car, roll it over into the new loan, so that $33,000 used car is now $43,000. If it was a $23,000 used car, now it's thirty three dollars because you got to roll over that $10,000. So you were already in arrears. You were already behind minus ten grand. Now you're going to add that to another loan. And add that to your economic insecurity. Add that to your world. Meanwhile, that same boss that's demanding you to work, to, to return back to office, the RTO, at any given moment, he can come into your office or send you an email on a Friday afternoon after you've left the building and tell you that you don't need to come into work tomorrow because your job no longer exists. Because that's what American Car Center did. They told everyone at the end of the working day were closed for business and hundreds of employees were out of a job. So don't you dare tell me. And I'm an entrepreneur. I'm someone that in a couple of years of you listening to this will be a very successful media uh, owner, media company owner. What we're starting here is going to be lucrative and it's going to be liquid. And as an entrepreneur, I still side with a certain level of equity to my employees, to people that work for me or work with me. Because I've been an employee more than I've been an employer. 
Okay? So with that being said, I understand. I can empathize. Just because I'm on the other side of the fence now, I've always said I'm unhirable at this time in my life. I'm not hireable. I can work with you. I can work with a boss. I have to be working only one or two degrees separate from the actual check signer, the boss boss. The boss boss has to know me by name and by face and has to be approachable. I don't have to be in the same city, don't have to be in the same state sometimes, but you have to be approachable. And I would rather you know exactly what I'm doing and how I work. It's important. No middlemen. Not four or five VPs of regional and assistant to the, no, 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 no. I don't want to talk to four people to change a light bulb or to make a left turn. No, don't want to have to go through HR and sign another form in a requisite. No, I'm not doing it. So many companies have reached out to me saying, oh, we want you to be a part of our, no. Oh, we want you to relocate. Eh, not for that money. And then I'm too far down the food chain. So I don't know what's going to happen. How many people? Oh, this is another thing, people. This is the thing that people have been complaining about. And this has happened. This has happened throughout my whole life. People will get a job offer. Move to a new place. And the job will say, oh, I'm sorry. You're no longer being considered for this position. They're like, wait, 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 wait. And there has been no recourse. Because employers have been complaining now that people have said, oh, yes, I'm going to take this job. And then they don't take it. And then they they don't take the job. They get hired and they don't show up because maybe they've gotten another job or maybe they've gone in another direction. So employers have been complaining over the last two, three years that that's what's been occurring. And then employees have sounded off and returned and said what we've been dealing with for decades is getting offer sheets. Salary requirements have been met. We've shook, shaken hands. We've said all systems ago. And then the offer was rescinded. And you left that per That person had other job offers on, on the table and rejected them for you, for company A. And you just shrugged your shoulders and changed your mind and never gave an explanation as to why. That's the world employees live in. It's a world of insecurity all the time because you never know if the day that you're at work is your last day. The company knows. The company knows well in advance what's going on with their financials. They know what loans they're, they're getting. They know what bridge loans they're getting, uh, what uh, bankruptcies or whatever they're filing. They know exactly what they're doing, how they're liquidating their assets, et cetera, et cetera, to stay afloat or not. You, as the employee, have always been the very last to know what's going on at the place that you work, that you've been leaving your house for every single day, for 10 hours a day, five days a week. And you don't know what's going on there except the group of tasks that have been assigned to you. That's all you know. One day, the boss man comes in, a friend of mine, can I tell you guys a story? This is a great story, actually. A friend of mine worked at this job, right? And um, he was a, a, a recording engineer. He works, in the, he works in music. And he still does, actually. Now he's uh, working on short films. He does the audio for short films now. Uh, good dude. It's supremely talented. But he had a, you know, a job job because at the time he was a fledgling video and audio engineer. And, you know, he had a daughter, new daughter, and he, you know, had a job job, you know, cubicle, cubicle warrior. And um, 
Monday through Friday, and that was he, he was using that job to actually support his daughter and to help pay for his his vision. He was extremely frugal. He didn't buy a lot of fan. He didn't know what fancy clothes and name brands were. He, he if it was clean, he would wear it. He would wear all kinds of different colors. He was an artsy dude. So if he saw a pair of pants for twelve bucks, perfect. Sneakers for twenty two dollars, no problem. He didn't care about any of that. His thing was electronics, software, and hardware. So he had a ton of things on layaway, and he was a disciplined <laughs> layawayer. It would take him a year, but he would get it, and he would religiously put a little money, the minimum, if he could put more, because the rest of his life was frugal. He didn't, he didn't eat fancy foods. He didn't, buy, he didn't wear anything designer. He didn't have any sort of frivolous, no purchases. That were frivolous. Even the electronics that he bought, he researched it to see if he can get something comparable to the high end brand sort of hardware and software. What can I get that's comparable, uh, uh, but 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 significantly cheaper? And it, and that's what he would do. Fantastic dude when it comes to money, um, in that regard. And he had this job, and I'll never forget it. The Friday. Um. He, uh, Friday night, I went to his house after work. We we're working on some things in music and editing. And he was like, yeah, 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 whatever. Was over there Friday. I went over there Sunday, left early Sunday evening. I know he was going to work. I knew I was going to work. I was like, yo, man, I'll, I'll see you during the week or the weekend. You know what I mean? Because usually during the week, every, we all have things to do. He calls me Monday. And it was like, 9, 10 in the morning, about 10 in the morning. And he's like, yo, June. I'm like, what? I don't have a job anymore. So what you mean? He's like, yo, I pulled into the job and I saw everyone kind of standing outside, some wondering maybe there was a fire or something along those lines because I didn't get why everyone was in the parking lot because it was, you know, work time. And he pulls up, he goes to the door, and there's a line of people looking to get into the building, and there's police and an armed guard there, the armed security. So he's looking around like, yo, guys, what's going on? He said, the business shut down. He's like, wait, what do you mean? The business shut down, and they're letting us in one by one to collect our belongings at the desk. And my friend was in complete shock. I'm in shock over the phone. I'm like, damn. He's like, June, I worked here for years. And now the security guard is escorting me to my cubicle and all of my things are in a box, a cardboard box with my name on it and a printout that says, thank you for your service. You're much appreciated. And if we ever blah, 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 blah you, you, we will consider you for rehiring again. And the security guard is just looking at him. And he looks at the security guard like, like, wow, like, this is it. And the guy's like, yeah, man, I'm just supposed to, you know, and he's like, well, why are you here? He's like, I'm just making sure that nothing, you know, people don't get mad and break stuff, whatever, whatever. And he's like, wow. And he walked out. And he said he didn't even bother entering into any more dialogue with people there about what's going on. He was like, that's it. That's it. Okay. Got in his car and went home. Friday afternoon, he had a job. So he thought. 
Monday afternoon, he didn't. And I guarantee you his company and his employer knew that days, weeks, months in advance. But they got as much labor out of each and every one of those individuals till the very last day. Okay? I say this to say that your loyalty is to your families, not to these companies. These CEOs ain't loyal. Okay? So don't you dare, if you want to work from home, don't you dare let these new articles guilt you into thinking that maybe you should return because that's where it's shifting. And your media, guess who can't work from home? Your media. Your media resents you for, me be, be, for you being able to be in your house. Those people that are working in media would love to do their telecasts from a studio in their apartments, put a green screen behind them <clears throat> and be able to speak from their home, right? They can't. And their corporate paymasters won't allow them to. And so their corporate paymasters are giving them a script now, which is looking to demonize you from deciding to work from home, abstaining from returning to work and spending $1,000 a month on car transportation because you live in a grid that was created imperfectly on purpose, purposefully imperfect, purposefully antagonistic to the actual worker. Purposefully antagonistic, perfectly antithetical to efficiently getting people to and from work and to and from town centers. That's what you have, an imperfect system. And now they want you back in there. At so if these jobs want you back in there, tell them to buy you a car. Tell them, be like, hey, listen, I'll work for you. I'll work for you if you buy the car. No, I don't want you paying the car note. And then all of a sudden you fire me and then I'm left with this note. Uh -uh. You buy the car. You get a, a, a whole fleet of vehicles and you lease it to me and I get to drive it for free and you gas it or I'll gas it. I'll gas it. You pay for it. And as long as I'm in your employ, boom. That's what you can start saying now. It's $1,000 a month for a car. $1,000 a month when you factor in car note, gasoline, fuel, and insurance. That's rent. In some parts of the United States, you can still live in a pretty decent neighborhood if you're paying $1,000 a month in rent before utilities. So I don't want to hear it. And I have, I'm an owner of a business. People who listen to this, several owners of businesses listen to me. But I'm looking at these capital. As a matter of fact, I'm going to read you something that I wrote. You guys want to hear it? You ever watch In Living Color? There was a part of In Living Color where you say, I got something I want to say to you. Want to hear it? Here it go. Very funny. I enjoyed that. Um, but this is what I wrote. Because someone online wrote, this person works in real estate. He says, I still ask myself why. This is what this man wrote. He says, I still ask myself why office workers, and he puts office in quotes. I still ask myself why quote unquote office workers feel so special and entitled. Granted, a portion of the jobs can be done remotely, but the move to two to three or even five day work from home 
and discussions about a four-day work week because the commutes are difficult and the need to manage personal and family time confuses me. This per okay? The vast majority of workers, service personnel of all kinds, laborers, factory workers, truck drivers, public safety, and even many self-employed people do not have that option. Well, unfortunately, there are certain people who can't have that option. A police officer can't work from home. Yeah, a banker can't work from home. A bank teller can't work from home. But for those who are in professions, a doctor, a nurse, can't work from home. So you can't juxtapose the two. This is for the people who can. For the people who can work from home, they should work from home. And the people who can't work from home should have more flexible schedules. So he's sitting here saying how confused he is by people looking to be at four-day work weeks, even though we've had several models. And this, this is not just a contemporary model. I've been reading and I've been arguing for the four-day work week for about two decades now because I knew it was going to be more efficient. I knew it. I knew that if you gave a person that extra day off consecutively, that it would, it would maximize productivity. You would cut down on sick days. You would cut down on mental fatigue. You would cut down on people abruptly leaving jobs and just, just, just uh, abrupt, abrupt resignations. You would, and, and it has. And now the, there's certain models in the, in the world right now that are showing that the four-day work week has worked. And not only has it worked, the, the productivity is up. So he's confused by this. Yeah, he's a gray-haired boomer, but I have no, this is not a, gen, this is generational, but it's also ideological because there are plenty of gray-haired boomers that are saying, heck yeah, we've been advocating for that for, 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 for decades. Matter of fact, when I was reading articles and books on the four-day work week and the, and the three-day work week and the 25-hour full-time work, those were by boomers too. So this is what I wrote, wrote in response to this person who feels that office workers are feeling so special and entitled. They are. They're not special and entitled, but they understand that they're in a privileged position to make certain decisions that a construction worker can't make. A person who uses a jackhammer and a forklift for a living can't work from home. But a person who uses a computer and a telephone can. Hello? Don't act confused, Mr. Man. You're being facetious. So what I wrote was... I started it by saying, I say this with all due respect, but your statement reeks of class distinctions and you represent the propertied investor who stands the most to lose from the hybridized model. Through the myopic lens of interim losses and gains, capital, and when I use the word capital in this sentence, capital is, is money and ownership. People who own businesses, people who own the money and they write you a check. Whoever writes you a check is capital, okay? Whoever signs your check is capital, okay? So let me start. So I say through the myopic lens of interim losses and gains, capital views workers empowering themselves exclusively as a threat to capital. Yes, commercial real estate spaces remain vacant and peripheral businesses are taking a financial hit during these times of correction. However, Aren't businesses constantly looking for ways to cut costs, whether it be through layoffs, reducing redundancies, etc.? Well, this is an example of employees cutting costs and addressing their needs. While only 10% of American workers employed are employed in unionized labor, the needs of the employee are seldom addressed and met. And when they are addressed, 
more often than not, it's met with this brand of resistance. Okay? This is capital striking back. I had this conversation and I've been going back and forth with this particular individual in my uh, messaging and I won't, I won't divulge that because that's private. This was public, but that's private. Um, this is the pushback. He's confused that people want to spend time with their families. That he said, five days, he said, uh, the move to two to three or even five days work from home and this discussion about a four-day work week because the commutes are difficult and the need to manage personal and family time confuses me. This move, the need, it confuses me. Really? It confuses you? Because he's only seeing it through the eyes of what? He does real estate and he does commercial real estate. He's taking a hit. He's taking a hit in his pockets and that's the only way he can view the world is through the metric of financials. Remember, remember what I remember the statement that I used or the uh, example that I used in the, in the last few episodes. I think it was the net worth versus self-worth. I'm going to say it again. There was a labor activist in the United States in the 1800s. And that person said, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember it word for word. But he said for you to have a, an abiding, progressive, an abiding society that's evolving. You have to have money on one scale and human beings on another scale. Money on one scale, man on another. He can only, this, this person and capital often only sees things through the money scale. They put money and man together and they can only value you and you are only valued by how you contribute to the workforce. And every time you get hired to do something, you're automatically underpaid. So it's an automatic profit oftentimes because you're automatically underpaid. It's a job that the boss can't do on his own. So they hire you to do it at a wage that's lower that they can still make a profit. So the job gets done, but, but you're not getting paid as much as you should for that particular job. So you're never getting your value. So entering you into the lab labor force undervalued at a suppressed wage is what keeps this whole thing going the way it is. The way it is. People don't want another model to be alongside this model. Or hybridized models. They don't want that. You go to certain places in Bologna. You see different models. You go to certain places in Germany. You see different models. You go to certain places in the Basque region. In the Mondragon region in Spain. You see different models. Of how people are working together. How employees have equity stakes. And, and, and ideas. And they know how the company is doing. On Friday afternoon. They don't get hit with the Monday the Monday morning reality check where, oh my gosh, I don't have a job. How did this happen? No, 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 no. There are plenty of models where each and every employee from the janitor all the way up to the CFO knows what's going on with the company. And, it, and it's not at the last minute. Now you're going to try to figure out how you're going to tell your kids, how you're going to tell your wife, what are you going to do with your life? Now you got to go find a job. What? No one from the company is there to greet you and speak to you. There's no counselor. There's no exit counselor. Exit Nothing. Just security and police. Armed guards of the old guard. Protectors of status quo giving you a cardboard box and telling you to get the hell out of here quick or else. Hey, people, don't kill the messenger.
So when I see these 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 guardians of the old guard acting confused in this facetious manner, in this condescending manner, because you, you feel a threat to your capital, and I called it a correction. That's what's going on. It's a correction. That's all it is. It's a correction. So now we're overcorrecting a system that should have been corrected before. We're going to get to it. This working from home, the vacant spaces, these, these commercial real estate spaces that need to be reformatted. Hey, we keep complaining that we have a housing shortage. And we have a ton of retail spaces in the middle of nowhere sometimes that shouldn't have even be, been built. But when I go, when I'm in New York City, one thing I used to love about being in New York in certain parts of New York was the mixed use property where you have apartments on top of street level businesses. So the street level was retail businesses and service businesses. And then another entrance were residential apartments upstairs. When that happens and you have these mixed use situations, guess what happens? A place rarely stays vacant for too long because the neighborhood is going to demand that certain things are available to them. And the needs of the neighborhood will be met because that's what business is supposed to do. It's supposed to solve the needs of the people and meet the needs of the people. So if you're in a community and it's a mixed use area, not some big plaza in the middle of nowhere where you have to take your big car and cross seven lanes to get to. No, it's part where people live upstairs, the business is downstairs, everyone knows what the neighborhood needs or wants. It's like, okay, you know what we could use here? We could use another such and such. So spaces reinvent themselves. They don't remain vacant for too long in those situations. Spaces reinvent and fill the needs of that community in real time because it's an actual neighborhood. It has a pulse. There are people who live here, work here, play here. Next door is the playground. Two doors down, there's, the, there's the, the play daycare uh, during the day in three stores down. But five stores down is the lounge that's opened from six to midnight. So the parents put the kids to sleep, go downstairs, get a drink, go back upstairs. These neighborhoods have the pulse of what, the, what their community wants. We didn't build a country. We didn't build America like that. Our city centers aren't built for the communities that they're in. That's why spaces remain vacant for so long. Because these corporations and these multinational corporations, they just, oh, we're going to build it there. We're going to build, we're going to build a hundred of these. Do you need a hundred? You sure? Hmm. But I guarantee you, if you live in a mixed-use neighborhood where a neighborhood has, they have stores underneath and they have um, homes on top and you have working families, you're going to know. And then you have chamber of commerce meetings and community board meetings. And now business and the community are working in tandem because oftentimes the people who own businesses actually live in the neighborhood. And now you're able to meet the needs of those communities in real time. I'm not talking crazy, people. I know I'm not on television, 
I know I'm not on the multi. I'm not on. Uh, I'm not on big legacy TV. But that doesn't mean I don't know what I'm talking about. And the people on legacy TV oftentimes don't have a clue what they're talking about. And they're not telling you the truth. I know what I'm talking about, people. I lived in certain regions that were able to get it done. I saw it in real time, and they were getting it done for decades, if not centuries. Reinv- the community just reinventing itself. Nothing needed to be bulldozed. Now you have many malls in America pre-shutdown that were getting bulldozed. We were, we were talking about the death of the American mall eons ago, decade ago. Decade ago. This was, this was bound to happen. What's going on now? So you have you have some commercial real estate that's available in Manhattan. Hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of vacant real estate. I know as a real if I was in real estate development right now, I'd be like, uh oh. But guess what's happening? You have a an artificial system of supply and demand in your housing market. And now you have a bunch of commercial real estate. You keep telling people there's no affordable housing. There's no housing. There's a housing shortage, blah, blah, blah. But yet now you're telling me you have vacant spaces. Those spaces, you're not going to be able to fill them with employees. You're not going to be able to fill them with businesses anymore. It's time to start thinking differently. You're not getting people back in those offices. Not when there's $1,000 a month that they have to spend on a car. Not when the average new car is $48,000, and that's pretty much the, the, the salary, a yearly salary of the average employee in this country. What are you talking about? Now you have record uh, delinquencies. Come on now. Record record. Uh, uh, car note def- delinquencies and repossessions. I'm sorry. And now you have layoffs due to logistical issues, due to government planning and shutdowns. You built the cities wrong and you handled this plant. I'm sorry. You handled this shutdown wrong. You had. And, and here's the, a- here's the aftermath. And this person had the nerve to blame the employee. This person had the nerve to blame the employee because they can't afford eggs and milk and bread, and the car. Oh, I don't understand what they're talking about. The commute is so difficult. $1,000 a month. $700 a month for a car note. Okay? What are we talking about here? What are we talking about here? Hmm? So, I say that to you guys because I don't want anybody. Matter of fact, I was just looking it up. Um... At one point before the government shutdown, the average rent, the average United States rent in America was less than a thousand dollars. It was about nine hundred. Now it's up. It's up to over a thousand dollars. So now your car note after insurance and gas is a thousand dollars. And your rent is a thousand dollars. And after taxes, most people are only making about twenty five to thirty grand. Hmm? So $1,000 a month on your car, not including maintenance, by the way. You didn't change the oil. You didn't vacuum it. You didn't change the tires or the brakes or anything. <laughs> because if it's a used car, it's 33000 You know, So you have $1,000 a month in car, $1,000 a month in rent. Hmm? What's that, 24000 a year? And after taxes, you're probably making about, I don't know, 24000 a year? <laughs> <laughs> if your average salary is about 40 something $50,000 and it's about 33% tax, you take that off, you're around 30 something thousand a year. Guess what? Everything that you have is going to your rent and your car. It's easy math, people. Businesses do it all the time. 
They just don't they don't take humanity into account when they decide to lay you off and you have because every adult is going to end up being a caregiver at some point in time. Every single adult is a caregiver. You're taking care of your kids and eventually somehow you may have to take care of your parents. You are a caregiver. And your companies could give a damn whether you have kids to take care of and an, and an infirmed parent to take care of. They're going to get rid of you because it makes the dollars make sense to. They're not going to take your humanity or what your children are going through or the fact that the children are in crisis. They don't care. But yet they want you to care and return to office. I'm telling you out there, do not return. Don't you dare return if you don't have to. Fight it as, fight it as much as you can. If you miss having friends and employees and stuff like that, create dinner dates and lunch dates. Meet with them on the weekends, damn it. Trust me, you'll be better for it. Hold the line. Because there are certain people, I've heard certain people say, you know what, I miss being around employees sometimes. Let me tell you, that'll wear off. Yeah, have everybody go on Groupon, pick a very inexpensive group activity, and you meet them on Friday night. Or even if you want to during the week after 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 everyone's finished working, everybody meets at the local whatever bowling alley for drinks or whatever. Have a little fun once a week or once every couple of weeks and enjoy yourself. Yeah, then you can enjoy your employees. Trust me. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, they're not family and they're not you. And when things hit the fan, the majority of us are not going to know these people a year in, a year from now it, when we leave these jobs, or when you leave these jobs. Do you understand? So don't put too much stock in that whole camaraderie, office morale nonsense. Build your, build your reality. Because when a company decides it's going to move to Malaysia, it doesn't take your reality under consideration at all. At all. It will work you to the bone on fri until Friday afternoon. And it'll know for weeks and weeks and weeks that Monday the 1st was coming. And they will work you till Friday the 29th. Until they can get that last bit out of you. They're like, we're closing our doors on the 1st, but no one else knows. It'll be like one or two three people that actually know that the place is the shareholders and your manager will have been shaking your hand and looking you in your face because you know he told me who wasn't there he said none of his supervisors were there that means they all knew because he asked the people said well any of my supervisors here when they you know here did the supervisors get escorted to get their cardboard box people on the line just shook their head no no they did not oh so they worked you they asked a couple of people to work late on Tuesdays and Wednesday and Thursday and they got just as much work out of them as they possibly can get and then they shut the doors and everybody else cashed out and the employee was left there holding their cardboard box in both hands in disbelief as to how they were discarded discarded they their life was in that cardboard box their labor was in that cardboard box their dignity was in that cardboard box So I'm going to continue to do a couple of these. I don't know if my next episode is going to be about this per se, but we're going to talk. We're going to we're going to stay on society, on American society and what's going on. We're going to stay on it a while because I want everybody out there who's working from home right now and feeling the pressures of maybe returning back to the office. I want you guys to look 
online, look overseas, do what you have to do if you can. Look to keep working from your home unless you absolutely have to return to an office or it's the kind of job that have to return to a place. Look to work from home. Why? These jobs don't care about you, especially in this country. There aren't, there aren't any golden parachutes and security blankets for you. It's not going to be a soft landing like you're, you're, like you're in a gymnastic school. You know, when you jump off of the pommel horse and it's that padding on the ground. So if you do fall, it's, you know, or it's like a trampoline kind of fall. You just bounce back up. That's not what this is. It's a hard landing. It's concrete. Sometimes it has spikes. The landing itself can kill you. So now you have to look out for yourself. And I hope each and every one of you take heed to a certain degree. You know, take what I say with a grain of salt or more. In any case, until we speak again.